Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Well, we've been spending a lot of time this Advent season uh, on the topic of names. What's in a name? Uh, Shakespeare's Juliet famously asked. That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. Her point is it, it doesn't matter what you call a thing, it just matters what the thing is. Juliet's trying to convince herself that just because her beloved Romeo is a Montague and she is a Capulet, despite the fact that the two families have been at war with one another for generations now, as Juliet puts it, "'Tis but thy name that is my enemy, thou art thyself. I don't care about your name, Romeo. You are you, and I love you no matter what." That's a sweet sentiment. Spoiler alert, they both end up dead at the end of the play. Because it turns out names are important. And the Bible's answer to Juliet's question could not be clearer. What's in a name? Answer a whole lot. There's a lot in our name. One scholar writes, in the Bible, names were more than just labels to ancient Hebrews. Nothing existed until it had a name. Its name expressed its character. And so there's this story in the Old Testament about a guy named Nabal, uh, whose name means fool. And he indeed was foolish. He insulted King David, but his wise wife Abigail pleaded with David, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. As his name is, so is he. His name expressed his character. So too, Adam's man of the earth, Abraham, father of a multitude, Israel, he wrestles with God, Moses, delivered from the water, once as a baby by Pharaoh's daughter, and then a second time to cross the Red Sea, David, beloved by God, Peter, Jesus' rock. Names are important. It's important to me that my son, Elijah, be named John William Elijah Duval IV. Because I never want him to forget that adopted or not, he belongs in this family. And also that Yahweh is his God, Elijah. It's also why I feel bad for those of you named Claudia, lame, Calvin, bald, Courtney, short nose, Cameron, crooked nose, and my favorite, Kennedy, misshapen head. But of all the names out there, there is one name that expresses its owner's character more perfectly than any other. It's the name that is above every other name, the name at which every knee will one day bow and every tongue will one day confess as Lord the name of Jesus. As the angel of the Lord announced on the eve of his birth, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And even though we will one day bow at his name, I will invite you now to stand with me as you're able, as we read the context for 
this angelic announcement of this greatest of all names, Jesus, from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We're going to zoom in on verse 21 and just take the name of Jesus and uh, study it all the way through the New Testament. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Would you use it this morning in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives to make much of Jesus, your son, the name above every name, the savior above every other savior. In his name, his mighty, beautiful, precious, powerful name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So throughout this Advent uh, sermon series, we've studied these five different names that the prophet Isaiah gave to the coming Messiah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and last night, Christmas Eve, Emmanuel. This morning, again, we, we arrive at his most important name of all, this personal, given name, Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew, literally salvation. And I want to thank Madeline Allgood for painting our, our last of our Advent paintings for us this morning. And so as the uh, patriarch Jacob was lying on his deathbed in Genesis, he prophetically declared, I wait for your Yeshua, O Lord, your salvation. As Moses was standing at the edge of the Red Sea, he proclaimed unknowingly, Fear not, stand firm, and see the Yeshua of the Lord, which he will work for you today. King David, again, unknowingly uttered this messianic prayer in the Psalms, Oh, that Yeshua for Israel would come out of Zion. Couldn't have possibly known what they were praying for, asking for. Truly, there could be no greater name for the Savior, Yeshua. His name makes it all the more heartbreaking when people ignorantly say things like, well, I believe Jesus was a good teacher. I believe Jesus was a great prophet. I believe Jesus was a good moral example. Because listen, friends, Jesus has no interest 
in merely being any of those things for you. Jesus' very name means salvation incarnate. If you want a teacher, go to school. If you want a prophet, read the Old Testament. If you want a good moral example, watch Mr. Rogers. But since what you need more than anything else is nothing less than salvation, you need a Savior, then you need to come to Jesus this morning. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And there are a lot of different directions. We could take a sermon like this, but since it's Christmas, and I really just wanted to celebrate with you who Jesus is and what he has done for us to work salvation for us, I thought we would just spend the rest of our time together this morning answering this question. How so? In what way? Because if you've been in in the church, even around the church, even around Christians, for any length of time, you've probably heard, I hope you've heard, that Jesus is our Savior. You've probably heard that thousands of times, right? Jesus is Savior. But how so? What does it mean to call Jesus Savior? In what way or ways is Jesus Savior? And I will be the first to confess this morning that most of the time when I talk about Jesus' salvation, it's pretty one-dimensional. The way the Bible talks about Jesus' salvation is actually three-dimensional, as we're going to see this morning. There are three ways in which Jesus is salvation for us. And each one of these glorious truths is worthy of our unending study and meditation and worship. But as it is Christmas, and as at least my kids still have not uh, opened their presents, uh, I promise to keep this sermon shorter, even than usual, so we can all... Go home and keep the celebration uh, going at home with our family and friends. And by the way, if you don't have family and friends to celebrate Christmas with today, please let me know after the service. You know, nobody should be alone on Christmas. We, we'll, we'll find a, a family and friends for you. We're, that's what church is, a spiritual family. But here are the three ways in which Jesus is our salvation. And by the way, for those of you for whom this sermon is just too short and you want to spend some extra time this afternoon reveling in Jesus' salvation, there's a whole branch, a subset of Christian theology called soteriology. literally means the study of the doctrine of salvation. There are whole libraries filled with great books on this topic, and so you can just go knock yourself out this afternoon. I'm just going to give you the the 15-minute Cliff Notes version this morning, Jesus' salvation. Number one, justification. Jesus has saved us from the penalty of our sin. So 98% of the time that I or most of you probably talk about Jesus saving us, we're referring, whether we know it or not, to justification. This fact, this glorious truth that Jesus has saved us, past tense, from the penalty of our sins that they rightfully deserve. So let me just give you, with each of these three forms of salvation we're going to look at briefly, the who, what, from, what, when, why, and how of justification. And with each of them, I'm going to mainly just quote the Bible for you and let God's Word speak 
like God speak in his own words, minimize my voice, maximize God's voice this morning. Let's hear from him what he has done for us in his son Jesus. First, what? What is justification? Answer, justification is our being declared righteous by God. Galatians 3 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then Paul gives that saving work of God a name, a label. He says, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And we'll get to that in a minute, how we're justified. But let's just look at the definition, what it, what definition, what it is here first. That's what justification is. It's our being counted as righteous before God. Otherwise, apart from being declared righteous, left on our own, we are unrighteous. We are sinful, which leads us to the second facet of justification. From what does justification save us? Answer, from the penalty of sin. Romans 6 tells us we know that our old self was crucified with Christ. For one who has died has been justified from sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The payment that our sins rightfully deserve is death, separation from God. But by God's grace, his undeserved gift, we receive the free gift of eternal life instead by being justified, declared righteous from sin, acquitted of all our guilt before a holy, perfect God. Third, by whom? Who justifies us? Answer, Jesus, Romans 5, as one trespass, Adam's in the garden, led to condemnation for all men, original inherent sin, so one act of righteousness now, Jesus's, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. We are made righteous, counted righteous, declared righteous because of Jesus' obedience. Fourth, how? How does Jesus justify us? Answer, by dying in our place. His sacrificial, atoning death for us. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. I mean, so much here we could stop and just spend whole sermons on, but a propitiation is a sacrifice that appeases divine wrath. God, as a holy, perfect, and just God, God is justly, rightly opposed to sin, offended by our sin. And, and he is so holy, the Bible says he can't even be near us in our sin. But praise God, he has graciously provided for us the only cleansing agent, solvent, that is strong enough, powerful enough to remove all of our sins, past, present, and future, the perfect, spotless, omnipotent blood of his son Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We call this imputed righteousness. 
in the church. It is righteousness that is ascribed to us as derived from another. It's the definition of imputed. Ascribed to us, but derived from another, namely from Jesus. It's counted to us, his righteousness. Philippians 3.9, Paul says, I want to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Because Paul's already told us in Galatians, by the law, no one will be justified. Like the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, I don't have a shot. You don't have a shot of, of keeping all those perfectly. By, by the law, no one will be counted righteous. I want to I be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Nothing less than the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is good enough to get us into heaven and praise God. That's exactly what he's provided for us in his death on our behalf on the cross. Trading all his righteousness for all our unrighteousness, the divine swap transaction. This is justification. Fifth, when did he do it? I just told you, on the cross. 2,000 years ago, 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Past tense, have been healed. That's why in John 19, 30, when Jesus said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He was speaking in the past tense. It is finished. It's done. But he was speaking about our justification. That would happen, occur 2,000 years later. All who would trust in him and be saved, even millennia later, it's as good as done. Past tense, Jesus has justified us. Sixth, why did he do it? Answer, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Undeserved love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were rebelling against him in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved have been, past tense, have been saved. That's justification. Lastly, for whom? For whom did Jesus die? Who are all these glorious truths true of? Who are they applied to, imputed to? Romans 4, 5, all who would trust in him by faith. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, it's not the godly. It's not the righteous, not the deserving. I mean, Jesus said, look, it's not the healthy who get the doctor. It's the sick. I came for sinners, for sick people, for the unworthy, the ungodly. But to the one who doesn't work, and consider themselves righteous. But to the tax collector who says, have mercy on me, a sinner. His faith is counted as righteousness. It's imputed righteousness again, but imputed specifically to those who humbly surrender from their striving, their self-effort, and simply trust the unmerited grace of Jesus. John three thirty six, 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, you can see how this news, the news of our past, already accomplished justification, how that news, our, our having been saved from the penalty of our sins is so good that we could easily just get sort of caught up there, camp out there all day long without even broaching the other two ways in which Jesus saves us. And to be fair, this is where the Bible puts the, the majority of the emphasis in the New Testament. The Greek verb, save, sozo, it's used 110 times in the New Testament. Of those 110 times, 12 of them are used in the present tense. We'll get to that in a moment. 30 times it's used in the, in the future tense. And we'll get to that even later. But that leaves 68 times, two-thirds of the times the New, New Testament talks about salvation. Sozo, it's in the past tense. This sense of justification. Like 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. He says this, this salvation was as good as done because God had a plan. When God has a plan, it's as good as done. Before, before he, creation, God had a plan to work salvation for us, justification. Past tense. Titus 3, 4, and 5. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. I'm talking about Jesus' first appearance 2,000 years ago. When Jesus was God's goodness and loving kindness incarnate. God our Savior, Jesus, when he appeared, he saved us. Past tense. And most famous of all, Ephesians 2, 8. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's, it's, it's done. We've been justified. And if all that was all the good news there was this morning for us to celebrate and worship Jesus on Christmas about, that would be more than enough. And it would be infinitely more than we deserve. But friends, the good news of the gospel gets even better than that because not only has Jesus saved us from the penalty of sin, but now, number two, through sanctification, Jesus is saving us from the very power of sin as well. Jesus is saving us from the power, as we speak, of sin. That's sanctification. What does sanctification answer? Our being made holy. So if justification was our being made declared righteous, sanctification is our being made holy by God. 2 Timothy 2, 21 describes this well. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. See, Jesus saves us to serve him. And we serve him by making his glory known here on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we were put here in the first place. That's why we were, we, humanity was created in Genesis 1 in the garden. God created us in his image, literally to reflect him, to reflect his glory to all creation. We're supposed to be like little walking mirrors. But sin breaks the mirror. It mars the image of God that we reflect. Sanctification is God putting the pieces of the mirror back together. So we reflect his glory accurately, appropriately. Sanctification. So 
we can once again do what we've been made to do, to reflect God's glory as holy image bearers. Hence, from what does sanctification save us? Answer, from the power of sin. Romans 6, again, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that, here's why, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification. Jesus sanctifies us so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. The power of sin is progressively broken in our hearts. The stranglehold that sin once held over our hearts gets progressively loosened as chains fall. Strongholds broken. Who sanctifies us? Answer, Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us sanctification and redemption. Hebrews 10, 10, we have been sanctified through God's offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 13, 12, Jesus suffered in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus sanctifies us. How does he do it? Well, there's this uh, past tense sort of sense of, of dimension of sanctification itself. Again, even the way uh, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews talks about it, that we have been sanctified through God's offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. He, he's already been offered once and for all. So we've, in a sense, already been positionally sanctified, but we're also being progressively sanctified by God's word, by Jesus' word and his spirit. That's how he sanctifies us. John 17, 17. Sanctify them, Jesus prays, in the truth. God, your word is truth. My word, Jesus' word, is truth. And it sanctifies us. It makes us holy as we submit ourselves and as we are changed, shaped, conformed. As we're people of the book, we submit to God's living word, active and, and moving and shaping us. More and more into the image of his son. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. We are transformed in the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. And then Paul tells us, for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So it's the spirit who sanctifies us, who does that, that shaping work, molding work. The Bible talks about God as the potter, we're the clay. He's molding us more and more back into the image of his son Jesus. And so Paul instructs us in Philippians 2 to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you. So we've got a role to do. Sanctification is, is this active process whereby we work out our sal salvation. He's talking about there the, the past tense salvation, justification. Work out your justification. You've already been justified. Now live that out. Work that out in the way that you submit yourself to God's word, to his spirit, and you're, you're shaped and you're molded more and more into the image, the likeness of Jesus, to be a reflection of his glory for all the world to see and to, to come to know the Lord. So we've got a role, but he says, work out your salvation with fear, fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. The only way that we can do any of this is by God's spirit in us. God's got to be the one to sanctify us. Jesus sanctifies us. It's his very spirit in us doing the work. When does he do it? All our lives. This is, 
Justification, past tense. There was a moment, I, I hope, I pray for all of you in this room, although statistically speaking, it's unlikely. There, there better be, there needs to be a moment in your life when you were justified, declared righteous, when you confessed with your mouth, believed in your heart, Jesus is Lord, God raised him from the dead, and you were justified. Sanctification is everything that happens after that until God takes you home. That's sanctification. Lifelong process. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, whether that's your day facing him face-to-face because he calls you home or he returns. God has already promised he will complete the work that he began in you. Why? Why does he do this? Why does he sanctify us? It's for his own glory. 2 Peter 3.18 exhorts us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is. It's growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then Peter encourages us why. He says, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So to the extent that we, his people, grow and the knowledge and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to the extent that we are pots, vessels, remember, cleansed for honorable use, but vessels that look like Jesus, that reflect, that are able to, to, to reflect God's glory to every corner of the, of the earth, we bring him glory as his instruments. Lastly, for whom does Jesus work? Sanctification. Answer, just as with justification, it is for all who trust in Jesus by faith. Sanctification, growth in godliness, being made holy, consecrated, set apart for Christ, is only for those who are in Christ by virtue of their faith and have been justified already. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Again, I mean, you just stop on any of these verses and, and, and dwell on it for any length of time. It'll blow your mind, but hopefully you know, fill your heart with, with the glory of, of this process of what Jesus has done for us in salvation. By a single offering, Christ has perfected. Perfection, we're going to talk about that here, in our, our, our third dynamic of salvation. Has perfected, that's glorification. But he's talking about in the past tense. He, he's already done it. So that's justification for all time, those who are being sanctified, present tense. And we'll get to, to Romans 8 in a minute as well and how all these things come together at the end. This is astounding. 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God, this is who sanctification is for, to the church of God, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who's sanctified, the saints, the church, those who call on the name of the Lord, those who are saved, those are, who are, have been justified, now get sanctified. Acts 26-18, Paul uh, Paul is preaching to the people who are trying to kill him. He says, turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. 
So turning from darkness to light, being justified, <clears throat> being set free and, and saved in that past tense, receiving forgiveness of sins, justification, that, earned, that gives you a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Again, I mentioned the New Testament, the word sozo, specifically used some 12 times in the present tense. Let me just give you a few of these. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 15.2, by this gospel, Paul says, you are being saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you. That's sanctification. Because I, I don't know about you, but I need to be saved again today. Because I've found a lot more ways to sin since the day I was justified. And I want to be set free not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. From the, the, the grip that it has on my heart. I want my heart to be freed and, and saved. To love and serve the Lord. Unadulterated. And praise God, that's what he does through sanctification. 2 Corinthians 2, 15. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Lastly, Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin, justification. He is saving us from the power of sin, sanctification. And finally, number three, Jesus will save us from the very presence of sin. We call this glorification. Go very quickly through these. Some 30 Future tense uses of the verb sozo. We won't read them all, of course. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more so shall we be, be saved. We shall be saved from him, by him from the wrath of God. So again, justification, glorification, put together there, inextricably linked to one another. Since we've been justified by his blood, we shall be saved. Romans 13, 11, salvation, Paul says, is nearer to us now than when we first believed. How's that possible? He's been telling us we're saved all through the, the, the book of Romans. Then he gets to chapter 13, and Paul says, salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Well, I thought I was saved. Well, you were, and you will be, and you are. <laughs> Hebrews 9, 28, Christ having me, it's... Salvation is nothing but salvation for those who are in Christ. And salvation now and yesterday and tomorrow, and it's all salvation because that's who Jesus is. He is Savior. Hebrews 9.28, Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, because he's done with sin on that day, but now to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's already broken the penalty of sin, the power of sin. On that day, he will save to the uttermost those who eagerly wait for him. So what is glorification? It's our being made perfect by God. Sanctification is being made more and more holy over time. Glorification is, okay, now let's, let's bring that process to its, its culmination. It's telos. It's perfection. You are perfected by God in Christ. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior. So this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing after Jesus has already come the first time, so we know he's talking about 
future tense, Jesus' return. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will return and transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now may God sanctify you completely. That's what glorification is. It's sanctification completed. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. That's sinless. That's the, the very pre, all presence of sin gone, spotless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now. So you're already God's children, those of you who are in Christ. But then John says, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, second time, we shall be like him then. What does it mean to be like Jesus? It means to be perfect, sinless, because we shall see him as he is. We're going to be like Christ. From what does glorification save us? already told you the very presence of sin. Revelation 21, 27 says, of the new heaven and the new earth, nothing unclean will ever enter it, freed from the, the very presence of sin. No more death, no more crying, no more tears, no more you know, pains, aches, and, and bodily uh, dysfunction. The only way that's possible is, is sin is gone. Right? Sin, totally gone. Who glorifies us? Jesus the same one who, who justifies us, who sanctifies us, Jesus glorifies us. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You'll be glorified. Romans 8, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, that we may also be glorified with him. Christ glorifies us. How does he do it? Answer by supernaturally changing us. 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall all be changed. New, glorified, resurrection bodies. <clears throat> you know, uh, scholars uh, disagree or, you know, like to speculate about what this will be like, what our resurrection bodies will be like. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about Jesus not being recognized at first, right? Uh, outside his tomb by Mary Magdalene, the other disciples later, like, who are you? So clearly his body's different enough, and yet it's still Jesus. Like once he tells them, oh, Jesus, it's you, and, and he's walking through doors and you know, we don't know how old we'll be, if we, but we still retain something of our of our ourness. I'll still be Will, but I am confident I'll I'll be able to dunk a basketball. I will, yeah, yeah. Dalton will be playing basketball in heaven, dunking on each other. It's going to be awesome. But we'll be all be on the same team because there's no competition in heaven. It's going to be everybody wins. Everybody wins all the time. <laughs> when does Jesus glorify us? When He returns. Or when he calls us home. Titus 2. In the present age, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans 8. The suffering of this present time are not worth comparing 
with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Just walk away with that in your heart this morning. Those of you who are maybe going through something difficult this Christmas, maybe this is not the greatest Christmas of your life for one reason or the other. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You're going to be glorified. It's hard to wait. Even Paul got impatient at times, frustrated. Let that drive us to pray. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Make it all new. Glorify. I want to be able to dunk a basketball. I don't don't want the aches and pains. I don't want this interpersonal strife and conflict. It's all going to be made new. No sin. Why does he glorify us? This is amazing. Because Jesus wants us with him in heaven for eternity. You know, there's a lot of like debate, controversy, I guess, over that that line and the song we sing, what a beautiful name it is. You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. So sometimes we change the lyric to it, like, oh, it's like, is heaven not perfect without us? I don't know why there's an issue with the, the lyric. It's biblical. Jesus prayed it in, in John 17, 24. Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am in heaven to see my glory. Jesus didn't want heaven without us. He wants heaven with us. That's why he came. Astounding. Lastly, Who? Who does he want in heaven with us? With him? Who does Jesus glorify? All who would simply come to him in faith. Romans 8:30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All those who've been called to Christ. That could be you this morning. I don't have time to get into predestination election. For all you know, you could be elected. You could be called. Certainly, I'm calling on you this morning. God's word is calling on you this morning to trust in Jesus by faith and be saved, be justified, be sanctified, be glorified. And it's all right there in in Romans 8.30. Those whom he justified, he glorified, and everything in between he sanctified, We'll come back to that verse in just a moment. But I do want to show you, just in case you're a visual learner, if this is a helpful summary, maybe you could have just put this up and and called it a day. Um, But this is a timeline of your life. If you're saved, there was a time in your life here on earth before you came to know Christ as Savior. Um, Paul talks about that time Man, thank goodness that's over. He says the time that has passed has sufficed for sinning. I, I, I want to be done with sin. And so that's sanctification. But justification is that one-time one uh, turning from death to life. That's not like a gradual process from death to life. I don't know if you've ever you know, seen the medical shows. It's like you're either dead or you're alive. You get shocked and, and your heart's beating. Okay, now he's alive. That, that's not a pro, that's justification. It's you were dead, now you're alive. And once you're made alive, now you're growing in this new identity 
the old is gone, the new has come. All who have been saved are a new creation in Christ. You're becoming more and more new, sanctified life here on earth with Christ. And one day it'll be done. He'll come, he'll come back or he'll take you home and you'll be glorified. And you'll enjoy eternal life in heaven with Christ forever. Perfected, glorified. I do want to come back here at the end to that Romans 8. 30 verse because I think the interesting the the amazing thing about all this is from God's vantage point like all he sees is that one static slide you know we we experience this in this kind of unfolding timeline but from God's vantage point every dimension of salvation is already as good as done did you did you hear how the the tenses of the verbs Paul used in Romans 8 he said those whom he predestined God also called, and those whom he called, he justified. Got it, justified, past tense. It's finished, Jesus said. Praise God. Then he said, and those he justified, he also glorified. It's already done. Again, don't have time for a whole, you know, theological debate here on whether or not you can lose your salvation. The short answer is no, you can't. Because if you've been justified, you've been glorified. And God keeps those he calls. He, Jesus said, I, I keep all the sheep that God gave me. I haven't lost any of them. No one snatches them from my hand. Who's, who's more powerful than Jesus? Who's going to snatch us away from Jesus? He is sa- salvation, capital S. You can't be unsaved. You've been glorified. You have the assurance, assurance of your eternal pardon. Jesus has conclusively dealt with your sin problem if you are in Christ this morning. And so, friends, as we end, what is our rightful, proper, only possible response to so great a salvation that Jesus has worked on our behalf? You go back to the Psalms. God's songbook, Psalm 35, 9. My soul shall rejoice in the Lord. You sing for joy. It shall exult in his Yeshua. We rejoice in God's Yeshua, Jesus.